0: last six chapters are, are about kind of a prophetic look into the future and we'll, we'll cover all of it but probably spend most of our time in the first six chapters and so I, I really think this is a, a powerful study that is going to challenge us in the way we live within our culture. And so I'm pretty excited about it. I hope you'll keep up with it uh, as we're going through it the next uh, several weeks. So Daniel chapter 1, we'll also take a moment to read Jeremiah 29 if you want to put your finger there. Let's pray over the scripture. And so Father, we come to you and we, we open the scriptures and now we need the work of the Spirit to illuminate, to cause the words to jump off the page and to speak into our soul and so Lord would you have your way would you reveal your word would you reveal your truth and your promise and your love and in your mercy would you share grace with us so that we can obey we thank you for this in Jesus name amen now if you need a message notes uh to follow along with us I think it's a a really important practice the uh ushers are there with uh message notes and with pens so take advantage of that all right here we go Daniel 1 1 through 6 says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Here it is, single ladies, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now let me give you a little backstory here. It's 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he invaded Israel and besieged Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim, the king over Judah, which was the southern kingdom, Israel had already uh, they they'd been split up for many years, and and now Ju- the king of Judah was ch- really um, challenged and changed alliances. To Nebuchadnezzar in an attempt to avoid Jerusalem being overrun, being uh, destroyed. He failed, of course, but this is the beginning of the agreement to send some captives, some exiles into uh, Babylon. Jehoiakim had to pay tribute. That's what he's talking about there in the treasury of the temple, and uh, then sent some royal family and nobility. To, uh, as essentially hostages to Babylon, as part of being conquered, and so the included in this group of people is Daniel and uh, his three friends. And so Daniel is the author of this book. By most Bible scholars uh, uh, believe that he was. It is the name that he uses. Um, but but he's he's being taken into captivity, and and he's describing the process he's describing the journey and what happened to him and i think it is so profound as we go through this book i think we see an example a model of how we can live as we study through the scriptures now for those of you who are new to the bible israel is god's covenant people right and and even if you're not new to the bible you kind of forget this god's covenant people were supposed to be a light to the nations a group of people that would, that would bless the rest of the nations who, who would be the, the image bearers of God and, and show who he is and how he works. But they, over and over again, began to turn to idolatry, to serving other gods, to rejecting God. And they were embracing idolatry, not only in idolatry, but injustice towards one another, violating each other, practicing um, very uh, uh, violent uh, things against each other and, and really tearing each other apart. Time and time again, after years of rebellion, over and over again, God calling out to them over and over again, I want you to come, come back to me, sending his prophets to warn them, and to say, look, look, so this is not going to turn out good for you if you don't, if you keep acting this way, you keep trying to, to serve these uh, idolatrous uh, gods that you're, that you're, that you're giving your lives to, and God finally says, enough is enough and then he removes his hand of protection, and just within just a few years, Babylon comes to conquer them and take them into captivity. Now, you need to understand that Babylon is really the, the zenith of civilization in the ancient world. Like, it is a city like no other. At the time, the largest city, 2,500 acres, uh, big, and it had walls, incredible walls, eight, 80 feet thick. Think of this, 80 feet thick. Which is huge, th- over three hundred feet high, that is a huge wall, even by today 's standards, maybe not even Donald Trump could build a wall that high. there would be it, it, it was fifty six miles long all the way around the city, and you have to understand what was going on in this city to really get the challenge for Daniel and so I think there's some pictures here. you see uh, the Ishtar gate right here. this is from the Pergamon uh, Museum in. Berlin and so it's a replica but you you see the animals uh, beautiful architecture b- beautiful artistry and 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 so Ishtar was uh the goddess of love and war for all you single people goddess of love and war it's a, it's a thing and and so and there she is and so um they, they they this was the kind of one of the overriding Babylonian gods of the time and then you see um you see here the cityscape where we see kind of how it might have been laid out. You see the, the here off in the left-hand corner the Ziggurat uh, building. That's this thing that's rising up into the sky. You get a close-up look at it right here. Uh, most many Bible scholars believe this is the Tower of Babel. They would call this they would call this the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. Sounds kind of familiar. Genesis eleven four says they said. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. This was the purpose of the, the, the Tower of Babel to make a name for ourselves and to resist God, to reject God in open rebellion of God. And all through the scriptures, Babylon is an archetype of how uh, idolatry, paganism, um, in fact, there's three. The, the, anything that is that is uh, rejecting God or rebellion against God, Babylon kind of is the picture for this. In fact, in Revelation, there are three chapters that are devoted to the idea of Babylon and how the um, the the last days sort of play out and this this spirit on the earth and and Babylon's illustrative influence. And so, you've it, it, got to understand that Babylon was a globalized economy. There was was tons of trade and commerce that was going on. There was incredible injustice within the city. It was a harsh and violent, brutal city and culture. Uh, Injustice, slavery, um, incredible opulent wealth, luxury, hedonism. I mean, sexual immorality uh, was was a defining characteristic of this experience. And, and, And so when you think about Babylon, some of it sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Right. Who is Babylon as we look at our modern day? The United States is driving the global economy. The, 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 the United States is a powerful force and it has all, many, many, many of these same characteristics. And so, in a way, we live in a, in a place that reflects the culture of Babylon. And so this is where Daniel and his friends were placed in exile. And the idea of exile, this is what this series is based on. How does it, how, how, do, how do we live in this environment? How do we live in this culture? Lee Beach in his book, The Church. In exile, he describes living in exile this way. He says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. This sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. That's a powerful statement right there. Unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. Simply put, Edward Said writes that exile is the perilous territory of not belonging. And so last week, we kind of dove into this talking about how this works. But even though you and I have not been shipped off to a foreign hostile country, we live in a country that, over the last 25 to 50 years, has had a huge shift in their belief systems. Really, for the first time in in the history of American culture, we as Christians, as people who believe in uh, God, the God of the Bible, we are the minority for the first time. For so long, we were we had a majority on the dominant values of Judeo-Christian ethics, where they were all through our culture. But now we live. In a post-Christian society, that's your first fill-in-the-blank, and increasingly, we are not only seen as kind of weird, right, or, or or unique, or maybe a kind of an oddity, but we are increasingly seen as being actually dangerous. In our views, we're kind of we're kind of they 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 put us in the same kind of category as the counterpart to ISIS. Right? They they lump us in with the the, the fundamentalists and crazy people, abortionist murderers, um, the shootings in or- the Orlando gay bar. They they kind of see Christians as this, and so we're thought of as those who really aren't necessarily well respected, but are but are intolerant, and many times intolerant bigots. This is the the culture in which we live, and and we have to we have to see it and we have to embrace it and understand it why this is. In a shocking twist, we have become the, the the keepers of the low moral ground. We become the immoral ones, we become the dangerous ones, we become the rebels. So much has changed. And this is the new normal. And the temptation for so many Christians is to sort of react in an angry or hostile way. And there are two extremes that we must avoid. We talked about them last week separatism on one side, and, and, um, syncretism on the other, separatism being this idea that we just back out of uh, all culture. We go out and we get all our, uh, all our friends and we have this little circle and we have our Christian coffee shops and our suburban gatherings with, uh, with the neighbors that we know and like that are Christians and we have you know our, our Christian radio station and we, have all, and we just back out from society and, and, and we've done this by default, by the way, over the last 25 or 30 years. We just kind of accidentally done it, as we weren't intentionally going against the way culture was going. We just many, for many people, they, the 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 suburbs are full of little bubbles of Christians that just are trying to live 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 it out um, without being engaged with culture. And so we can't do that. Synchro- separatism is not something we're not we're not getting everybody together. We're going to Wyoming and <laughs> join a conium. Commune, commune. I mean, we're going to share all our... F- I mean, that's that the picture that some people have. It's like, that's the only way it's going to work, man. We got to go get our guns and we got to go make sure we have all the rations we need and we got to separate because it's all going down. It may be all going down. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen. But we cannot separate from society. Because Jesus has a purpose and a plan. He's trying to speak to people. The other extreme is syncretism, which means we just blend into all culture. We just start acting like everybody else and, and, and really statistics tell us that some of the behaviors in the church are the same as outside the church. And so most of us over the last many years have been guilty of syncretism more than separatism where we're just blending in, we're just becoming like the rest of the world. But God has another way for us to live. He doesn't want us to disappear and blend in. He doesn't want us to separate. He wants us to engage. This is the letter in Jeremiah that Daniel re- read. In Daniel 9, he, he clarifies. He says, look, I read this, the prophetic writings, the scriptures of Jeremiah, and this is what he said. Look at Jeremiah 29.4. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray for, to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Imagine this. This is what Jeremiah is telling the people who are going into exile. I want you to perpetuate your family. Make sure that you're investing in your kids and, and have more kids. Don't, don't act like, oh, everything's so bad, I can't have any more kids. Don't separate from society. Engage with society. Grow crops. Buy and sell. Involve Involve yourself in the community and then amazingly pray for it. Pray for this Babylon. Pray for this culture that is so opposite to yours. Pray for its peace. Pray for the peace and prosperity of the city because you're intertwined with it. What God is saying here is I have a purpose and I have a plan and I don't want to lose my people within this purpose. And he's saying the same thing to us today. Isn't it interesting what these exiles do? This is what we talked about last week, if you want to go back and listen to that. The point of the book of Daniel is how to live as a creative minority. And the creative minority is a group of people that don't just survive as a minority, but they actually adapt. They learn to thrive, they learn to innovate, they learn to redefine, how to recreate a way, a new way of living out our true Core, what we really believe, our convictions. Jonathan Sachs, in his article called On Creative Minorities, says it this way. He says, So you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity, live your faith, and contribute to the common good, exactly as Jeremiah said. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It isn't for the faint hearted, but it is creative. Cognitive dissonance, I think that's how so many of us feel about how to confront the culture that we live in. But Daniel and his friends faced a constant confrontation with the Babylonian culture. And this teenager stared down the culture of Babylon and lived out his convictions. And, and, and his temp- he overcame the temptation to compromise, the overwhelming pressure to the tyranny of the majority. And that's why we're studying it. And so often, even in our churches, it's like, oh, well, you know, God couldn't see, the, the writers didn't know what kind of issues we'd be facing in our culture. So, you know, God didn't know the issues and, and, and we have to reinterpret the Bible for our times. Actually, no, you don't want God changing to reflect you. You want to change your life to reflect God. So and, and, and when, so as soon as we start talking about this, then we start outlining some things, right? Like uh, video games. What kind of video games should you watch? What kind of music should you listen to? What kind of, what kind of movies should you go to? Listen, I'm not going to do that in this series. We're not going to outline all this stuff, the do's and the don'ts. And that's not the point. What I want you to be is filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to believe that God has a narrative, a story that you're living out with the Jesus at the center and let him lead you. And so uh, this, this is so, it's so easy to lean to the do's and the don'ts. As I was raising my kids, you know, and we were trying to figure out what to allow them to do, what not to allow them to do. And, and, and we tried to, to, try to put in them the sense, the convictions of, of right and wrong, but then they have to live that out with their choices. So I remember very vividly one of my kids you know, they play video games, and some of these video games are terrible. It's like, well, what happens to you when you play those video games where you're killing all these people? Nothing. It doesn't affect me at all. I said, that's the problem. Right? My, my, my uh, second oldest son one time, I remember he said, he called me one day, and he was like, he's like, Dad, me and my friends, we want to go to this movie. He was kind of asking for my permission. I think he was 17, maybe just turned 18. And he was like, Dad, my friends and I, we want to go to this movie, can we? And I said, well, what's it rated? He says, rated R. I said, what's it about? He said, tell me what it's about. And I said, well, what do you think you should do? It's like, oh, Dad. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> I hate it when you do that. He ended up not going to the movie. But it was his choice, and he has to live out those choices. He has to learn how to do that. You and I are the same. We have to live those things out, but there's something deeper. When I was growing up, I grew up with kind of the phrase, we don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do. But there's something, there's something deeper than that we here's what as your pastor what i would say to you is i want to be known for what we're for not what we're against i want to be known for what we're for not just what we're against and so then how do we live with this different narrative than the culture is offering offering us or another way to say it is when the culture shifts will you how does it work Because when culture shifts, number one, it will try to rename you. This is what happened to Daniel and his friends. Look at this in Daniel 1, verse seven. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. See, the first goal of culture, you gotta get this, is to rename you. It is to give you an identity. It is to redefine you. It is to change your identity from who God made you to be to what they think you ought to be, what the world thinks you ought to be. And this is what happens. It's an all-out assault on your God-given identity. I, and I believe you have to understand that, that organizations and people, they have a plan for your life. McDonald's has a plan for your life. <laughs> they want you to drive through that thing in order. They want you to eat their food right? They want you to consume it. Apple has a plan for your life. It's a like a much better plan. It's a pretty cool plan if you ask me. But it is not. It is not the scripture. And so culture will push you to define you. Listen, Austin, Austin is a city. It is a cool city it's got some it's it's hip it has artists it has intellectuals it has a way of thinking and living and functioning that really it it indoctrinates you subtly and slowly a little bit at a time there is something that comes into us if we're not willing to ask the question am i being renamed Am I living God's identity out in my life? Listen, you, every one of us need to ask this question. I can tell you, as a young man, it was, it was the world's identity that, want, that, that they wanted to push on me. I was a pastor's son. I was a PK. And I don't know if you know much about PKs, but very few of them kind of go down the middle. They either turn out, they embrace the calling of their family, and they surrender to that, or very often they go the opposite direction and they just go nuts. They go crazy. And I I can tell you that as a man, I can see in my history, the claim of the enemy in my life was for me to be a bitter, an immoral, probably drug addict or alcoholic. I probably would have been a really fun drunk I don't know because I've never been drunk, but, but there, there. I think I've seen a lot. I saw a lot of damage. As a kid, people criticizing my dad as a pastor. I saw churches break apart. I saw things from people that were really made me uh, wounded and broken. Um, my, uh, my parents went through a divorce as pastors when I was 17 years old. I think what, I sh- what, what the world's plan for me, what the, the, the enemy's plan for me, was to be a broken and bitter man, to resent and reject God's people. But here I am, 25, 30 years later, I am in love with God and his people. That's a miracle. But it did not come without challenge did not come without cost. Your identity, God has a redemptive name for you. God has given you a new identity and a new narrative. You and I have to understand that there's a different narrative we're living out, a different storyline than what is happening in culture. For Daniel, let's look at their names, all right? Here it is. For Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. In other words, I answer to God and to God alone. But Babylon changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. Lady, protect the king. I want you to see how the focus went from God to man. It went from God to man. And one of the challenges of our culture is the culture constantly wants to change God's label to man's label. People who are going through gender confusion should have some of our our empathy. We should understand there are challenges there. But listen, make no mistake, there is an issue there. And there is something happening where people are surrendering to man's ideas and man's identity rather than God's. And and so I, I think we have to be willing to listen to what God says about how he made us. And what they're saying to Daniel is, you're not even a man. You're a lady, and your job isn't, doesn't have anything to do with God. It's all about serving the king. It's all about protecting the king. You answer to us. For Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious. In other words, oh, what an amazing God I serve. He's so gracious. But Babylon changed his name to Shadrach. I am fearful of God. In other words, the fearfulness is God is not good. He's mad at you. He's, he's, he's bad. Notice how the focus changes from God is good to God is bad. And I think this is a challenge in our very own culture that we find today. People are, are so convinced that God is bad that there's something that he should should have rescued people from right like they have this picture like if if he's so big why didn't he save us from all this crazy stuff that we're experiencing listen i can answer that for you here's what i believe the story of the bible is about the narrative of the scriptures is about god creating a perfect environment for mankind and 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 he was willing check this out he was willing to risk the chaos that we live in today, the violations, the destruction, the sinfulness, the, the, uh, everything that happens to people, all of, the, all of the things that are so terrible to endure, he was willing to risk all of them for the sake of relationship. You see, because humankind cannot have a relationship with God unless they choose it. He had to give a powerful, choice, a will to humanity, and he did, he was willing to do that, but what he did in addition was he he had a plan, he had a purpose to rescue them from all that destruction, and he put it into place, and the story of the Bible is that rescue plan. The story of the Bible is that way that God is working out his will, even in the midst of a sinful people, even in the midst of people saying no to him. And he brings Jesus into the picture as the center, central character of this narrative, of this story. And Jesus begins to show who God is. I think we have to embrace this. We have to see it, that God is good. Some people are like, you don't want to serve God. He's like, I mean, you'll die of boredom. <laughs> Some people are like, no, I don't know if I can serve God because I don't want to be one of those ignorant killjoy Christians. Well, don't be an ignorant killjoy then. <laughs> don't blame don't don't blame god for some of his foolish people this is what most people get tripped up on they blame god and say he's bad because some people mistreated them right. instead of believing the story of sin and death and destruction that jesus came to eradicate for mishael his name meant who who is what god is in other words man there is no one like my God. But Babylon changed his name to Meshach. I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. How'd you like to get that name? (laughs) Notice how the focus changes from confidence to cowardice. Confidence to cowardice is exactly what... The world is trying to do to you, to move you from confidence to cowardice. If you're a Christian, they want to threaten you. They want you to be quiet. They're okay with you serving Jesus on your own, but keep it to yourself. You want to believe in Jesus or the super ninja Jedi knight? Fine. Great. Keep it to yourself. Don't tell me about it. See, the world is trying to make you a coward. But listen, everybody, you need to be confident that there is no one like our God, that there Really, there is no one like our God. Don't be afraid to pray in that restaurant. Don't be afraid to bow your head. Don't be afraid to call yourself a Christian. You should never be rude or angry. There's no place for that in God's people. But you do need to be confident in who God's called you to be. In the faith that you have in the convictions you possess. For Azariah, his name meant Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped, he helps me. Yahweh is an enduring, endearing term, an endearing term that that kind of signifies a relationship. This loving God that's personally involved in my life. Yahweh is reaching down to help me. But Babylon changed his name to Abednego, servant of Nebo. Servant of Nebo, not Star Wars. But Nebo was the patron god of scribes, wisdom, and literature. And he was the keeper of the tablets of destiny, which recorded the fate of all mankind. And so notice how the focus goes from son, from a son to a slave. From an intimate relationship with God who helps you to being a slave of all these worldly ideologies and philosophies and destinies. This is exactly the mindset that the world is trying to push on you and me. But listen, there is no greater. I think there's, there's a fantastic story in the Bible, Luke 15. Luke 15 is one of the seminal passages in the Gospels where Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son and the father waiting for him to come home. God is loving, kind. His kingdom is a kingdom of love and servanthood. His kingdom, he's ready for you to respond when you're ready to leave your past behind. He's waiting there. See, when culture shifts, you better know who you are. You need to be secure in your identity with Christ. And this is why I speak so strongly about joining a group or, or becoming part of the community. You're not going to be able to do this alone. You need to j- join a catalyst group and, and, and learn about your identity in Christ and who, who you are and who he's called you to be. Now listen, for, for Daniel, for Hananiah, for Michelle, and in Azariah, Culture changed their names, but they could not change their identity. Culture changed their names, but they could not change their identity. Look quickly. Number two, when culture shifts, it tries to tame you. It tries to tame you. Look at this in Daniel 1.8. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So I want you to notice what Daniel's doing here. He's actually asking. He's asking the person in charge if he can do something different than what they've been ordered to do. He's not angry. He's not judgmental. He's not trying to change everybody else. What's he doing? He's trying to preserve his convictions. Daniel wasn't trying to change culture, he was trying to preserve his convictions. Sometimes, this is, a, this is such a huge lesson for us because sometimes we spend our days thinking about how we can change the culture when all the while we're kinda of losing our convictions. If we'll just live out those convictions, Instead of trying to force them on others. We can't, listen, Christianity, you can't force it on anyone. It doesn't work that way. That's not what Christianity is. Anything that's forced or controlling, that's not godly. It's It's not God's nature. It's not God's character. Jesus did not die for behavior modification. He died for people. He died to, to love people. And he died so that we could have a relationship with him. So notice what Daniel does here. He doesn't yell or scream. He doesn't call out his friends who are eating up the food. <laughs> he says, I want to eat this way. He simply and humbly asked for permission to eat dis- differently. But he resolved not to defile himself. Now, what's the big deal about this food and wine? Like, what's like? it's just food and wine. Boy, I hear that argument all the time in Austin. What's the big deal? It's just some food and wine. It doesn't matter. On the surface, it may seem like a small thing, but for Daniel, he was Jewish. So likely there were, uh, this, this food was not according to the strict dietary laws of the Jewish people. And all the food was likely offered to idols. And so it might have been a small thing, like it might have been just the tip of the iceberg about what Babylon offered. I mean, all kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of stuff available in the king's service. I mean, who knows? Who knows? But this, but Daniel, early, right away, he said, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to my convictions and I'm gonna ask if I, can, if I can preserve these. Listen, when culture shifts, it will try to tame you. It will try to make you a coward. It will try to keep you from your convictions. It'll try to lure you to do something you know is wrong for you or even others who you're with. This is one of the things that I think Christians have to wrap their minds around with the way they consume alcohol. You know, the Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't tell us we can't ever drink wine. In fact, in one segment it says, take a little wine for your stomach. That's what Paul told Timothy. But, there, but there's, a, there's an important thing that we have to understand as we look at that is that everything is so subtle. It's so enticing for people. And you have to remember that as a Christian, your role is to love God and then to love people. So not only just because the Bible doesn't forbid you from drinking alcohol, that doesn't mean you actually can because you have to listen to him. You have to listen to him, what he wants for your life. It would be so much easier if we just could say all the do's and don'ts, but it's, it's more relational than that. So you have to listen to him about what you're allowed to do. And in the same way that we love God, we love our neighbors, which means when you're out with friends, you have to know how your consumption might affect people around you or tempt them, or cause them to stumble. That's how it works. It's relational. It's not based on laws and do's and don'ts. It's based on your surrender to God. So we got to get that right. And, and everything, in Austin, it's so it's so subtle. It's so enticing. It's like, here you go. Just, it's no big deal. Just have another drink. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. You, you really love him. It's okay. Go ahead and sleep with him even though you're not married. Everybody's doing it. Just go ahead and trim a little off of the report. It's, that's how it works in this company. It's fine. Just go ahead and do it. It's just part of the landscape. It's just a little lie. It's not really big. Little by little by little, your convictions will go. They, you will disappear in a culture. When culture shifts, don't lose your convictions. For Daniel, he didn't shrink from the moment he came to it with force, with wisdom, with humility. Number three, when culture shifts, it will try to claim you. It will try to claim you. Daniel 1, 9 through 12 says, "'Now God had caused the official to show favor "'and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, "'I'm afraid of my lord, the king, "'who has assigned your food and drink. "'Why should he see you looking worse "'than the other young men at your age?' The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Now notice what Daniel says. He says, okay, just test us. Just let us pass a test. And and in the Bible, throughout the Bible, the number 10 is about testing. Ten commandments, the testing of her faith. Malachi says you should tithe, which is a tenth, right? It's bringing bringing a tenth of everything you have to offer to God. The disciples were hiding out in the room for 10 days, waiting, being hunted down to be killed in Revelation chapter 2. The church at Smyrna was tested for 10 days. It's all over the scriptures. Listen, church family, you will be tested. You will be tested. You might as well embrace it. There will always be a moment when culture will get up in your face and test you. There will always be a moment when culture will test you. Verses 12 through 14 says, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then all you vegans said amen. but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Listen, there's a battle for your life. Surrender to this. You have to decide. Because culture wants to claim you. It wants to absorb you. When I was in high school, I worked at a Wendy's. Three and a half years, I worked at Wendy's, and so single, double, triple cheese. I mean, I know every, I know more than you could ever hope to know about Wendy's, and I, I, I lived, kind of with that group of people for three and a half years during high school, and I had the opportunity to engage in every kind of, um, every kind of exercise. Of um, medicating ourselves with alcohol or drugs—I mean, weed—it was all passed around. There, the, the the opportunity to hook up was all around me. And I remember, like, I I was a pastor's kid, right? So I'm the skinny, scrawny, goody-two-shoes, naive pastor's boy, right? And and it was almost like a it was almost like a competition to see who could corrupt the the goody-two-shoes. Right, so there was all the always this uh, things being offered. Yeah. Yes, handsome, it was handsome, and so what? And what happened was, as as I went through that, I I was uh, under the work of ho- the Holy Spirit in my life. I resisted, and it, and and they would after closing, the closing team would finish up everything, and they'd go in the parking lot and cr- open up the beers and pass them all around, and I'd be there with my root beer. <laughs> I'd be hanging out with them, and, and, and I interacted. I, I didn't separate from the community. I engaged, and I remember over and over again sitting at the back near the storage room where the break table was, and you'd sit down there, and you'd have your little meal for lunch, and people would join you because they were on break too. And I remember over and over and over again conversations about Jesus. It would just happen over and over again. Conversation about who Jesus is and what he's, what, what is this all about? And I had a young lady who I worked with at, with the store and, um, and we had a, we had a little fling, but not much, but just a little, just, no, it was, it was fine. And so it was, and so it was, so, but, but, but. But there's this, there's this moment, several years later, I, I, I saw her. Uh, she was married. I'd, I married Amy. And so we had a moment, and we hadn't seen each other since she worked at Wendy's. And she stopped me there, and she said, I want to tell you something. I have never been as impacted by a Christian as I was by you. I, I never knew it could be that way. I didn't know what a Christian really was till I met you, and I didn't, I didn't know how to say yes then, but since then, Jesus has come into my life, and I, I think it's largely because you made it possible because I opened up my heart to think it might be. That's an, inc- you don't, see here's the thing, you don't know what it'll do to the people around you. You have no idea, you have no way of knowing. When culture shifts never give into to the pressure, people will say, come on, just go with us, no one will ever know. Our city is so enticing, so t- subtle, so cool. Listen, everywhere you go, and listen, we need to love our city. We need to pray for our city, we ne- but we need to say, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that because I've chosen a different story. I've chosen a different life. I choose God. Look at verse 15. 1.15 says, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. <laughs> see, see, here's, here's the thing. You don't know if it might be better. With God, it will always be better. Because you think, I'm going to miss out. No, you're not. It's going to be okay. God's way is better. Verse 16 says, So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. So they studied. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. That's the work of the Spirit. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magi- magicians and enchanters in this whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This last verse, it is a little clue, a little signal that he lasted in this position all the way to King Cyrus, which was many years into the future. And so he stood, he had convictions. He, he, it's so interesting, Daniel never refers to himself as Belteshazzar in the book. In fact, what he does is he, he, he actually misspells all the Babylonian gods' names. And all the names of the Babylonians, killing, and they and Babel scholars thought it was like a like a mess up liter, literary mess up. But then they realized, oh, we think he's doing it on purpose, like a little bit, like a little dig. We got to understand that our identity comes from God. And I was thinking about this picture as I was I was doing this message, getting ready to share it. I don't know if you've ever been uh, paddleboarding. You ever been paddleboarding on town town lake? It's fantastic. It's a fun thing to do, and I, I found that when I get down there and I get on the paddleboard, and you know, it takes a few minutes to kind of get your balance, but you pretty soon you get it, and you're you're going down. And typically, they make you go towards the bridges, and and as you go towards those bridges, you know, you're kind of floating along. Everybody's kind of going with you. It's kind of just, it's really cool, and 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 the the the, the current is kind of carrying you. And you get down to this place where you're supposed to turn around. You turn around. You start coming back, and now you're coming like against the current and you're against all these other people are kind of coming at you and you got to figure out how, to, and it's harder work and it's more difficult if the wind's blowing that way then it's, then it's like blowing against you and stopping your progress. And I think this is a picture of where we are in our culture. For a long time, you could just kind of coast in our culture because everywhere it reflected a Judeo-Christian value. You could just kind of coast along. You could just not have to make too many decisions or press too hard. But that is no longer where we live. And we're going to have to be willing to stand up and to begin to paddle, to begin to make decisions, to begin to go against the grain and against the current. I have to, we have to be intentional. We have, to, we have to understand that our culture has shifted, that it is no longer reflects what it used to, and now we can't just float. We have to be vigilant. We have to be willing to stick together as a community and live out of this identity together, this story of Jesus and his love. We have to be intentional and proactive. We have to each decide I mentioned don't be drunk with wine, right? Here's Ephesians 5, 18. It says, don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. Instead, it gives an alternative. Instead of getting drunk, instead of doing all this other stuff, I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what I think this means? This means don't stimulate your life with all this other stuff. Don't stimulate your life with all these other things. Don't stimulate your life with all the Austin crowd, What? Never go to... No, man. Enjoy the good places to eat. It is awesome. We live in a great city. We should love it. We should love the people. We should celebrate. But we should not let it stimulate our life. We should not let it rule our lives. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And these are the sort of convictions and resolute decisions that we're going to have to make while living in exile. Now I want you to... Bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want you to pause here for a moment. I want you to listen to what the Holy Spirit might tell you, might say to you. He might want to remind you of some convictions that He gave you in the past. He might want to show you where you've been sliding and just floating along. This is your moment to turn, to turn back. Some of you, this is this may be a a thing that you're thinking about, I didn't even know that I should be changing and being different than the world. I, I think I'm realizing I'm not different enough. And I need to give my life to Jesus today. And listen, there is no other way to do this. This isn't, it can never be done by works. It can never be done by willpower. It can only be done by the work of Christ in our lives and the, the in, inhabiting of the Holy Spirit in us to help us change. And that's why we come to this table this morning. Because this table was set by Jesus himself. The bread represents the body his body was broken so that you could be, and I could be whole. This body was broken. His body was broken for our healing. The cup represents the blood of Jesus spilled for the so forgiveness of our sins. You can be forgiven for your past, for your history. This may be a moment where you need to be forgiven. God's calling you up to another place. He's asking you to He's asking you to work against the current. He's asking you to listen to him above all others. As you come to this table, I want you to see it as a table of provision, a table where he fills you with himself, a table where he gives you everything you need, a table where life is offered. Father, as we come to this place, Would you speak to each of us individually? Would you change us? Would you give us a new perspective? Would you give us a new start? We thank you for this, Lord. We yield to you. We receive of your forgiveness and your provision and your love and your healing. In Jesus' name, amen.